welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and today you'll be hearing an interview that Sam did with Damon Krakowski. If you listen to this podcast, you likely know who Krakowski is, whether it be from one of his bands, or his podcast Ways of Hearing, or his really great journalism, or as a voice for the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers. A relatively new group that emerged uh, back in 2020 during COVID lockdown, and they've really been uh, changing the conversation around uh, streaming royalties, touring, major label contracts, I mean, you name it. Um, Obviously, we've been keeping an eye on their work, and so we wanted to speak with Krakowski, really an overdue conversation, to dive into the vision that the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers has for the music industry and beyond. As always, please rate and review us. You could follow us on Twitter at M4N Podcast. You could also subscribe to our newsletter at moneyfornothing.substack.com. Okay, here's the interview with Damon Krakowski and Sam. Enjoy. who's um, a tremendous book, a fantastic newsletter, um, a performer in, in many different groups. And I guess what we're talking about, really, uh, your role as a, I would say, you know, um, a union rabble rouser. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I, that's the first time I've been introduced that way, and I, I love it. So we're here today to talk about the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers. And I, I guess maybe just kick things off, I'm wondering if you could tell us, I guess, a little bit about the organization and, and how you got involved with it. Yeah, this, it's, a, it's a very exciting new organization. UMA is how most of us refer to it. Um, so this started during COVID and uh, when everyone was thrown out of work for live music. And a group of younger musicians than me, I'm, I'm pretty much the old gray-haired guy on the Zoom call. Um, a bunch of younger musicians that I know initiated uh, just a Zoom meeting, open meeting with um, musicians that they were friendly with or, or knew that they had political sympathies with to talk about what we could do. Is there anything we could do if we organized together to uh, ameliorate our situation? I mean, the situation was kind of desperate and still kind of is really for most of us because uh, over the last... 20 years or so, um, everyone has had to turn away from recorded music income to live music income in the profession. And COVID locked us out of our live music income 100% at the beginning. So we were all just unemployed. So we started meeting on Zoom. And um, because we were all unemployed, we had time to meet on Zoom. (laughs) So, you know, it was like no one was on the road. Everyone was home. And that is a really, really unusual situation for a musician. So it was very, was really a, it was a big bright spot for me in, um, in a dark time because um, we were taking advantage of, of, of this uh, situation in a positive way and got to connect with a lot of musicians that uh, wouldn't otherwise have had the opportunity to. We used this corporate tool, Zoom, and, and, and um, 
it's a, actually quite a powerful organizing tool, really. And the other organizing tools that the internet and really business use of the internet have handed us, uh, you know, like Slack and all that crap. Um, to uh, and you know Google Groups and you know it's like all these corporate tools, but you can use them for very effective organizing against corporate control. So, so that's what we started to do, and we got together and just talked about what we what we could affect um, if we were to organize, which is not a typical thing for musicians to do. And I think that's really the most interesting thing that's been happening from Yuma is um, musicians are very ready and want to organize but we are we live a very very atomized existence in music uh you know you you're working on your own you're touring on your own you have your contacts in the industry but generally you don't get to compare notes uh especially financial notes business notes with um other musicians you cross paths on tour you have your circles of sympathetic uh, people in where you where you live, um, or in a stylistic sympathies, uh, sometimes very international in that way, given the internet. Uh, and yet, you know, we're not really encouraged to sit down with like show each other our recording contracts. Um, there's, in fact, the industries have been, historically been structured to discourage that. So that's just basically what we started doing: comparing notes. And you know, it's the same as organizing on a factory floor. It's that once. Once workers start to compare notes, I think management's in trouble, or ownership especially. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone had kind of known that streaming was unsustainable, that, and we'll get to that in, in more detail later, and that, 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 you know, the kind of move away from recorded revenues towards touring revenues. And, and it's funny, because, I mean, just seeing kind of the conversation is like, I feel like people have been saying that for years, but somehow... The, the pause by COVID, it seemed like made people have maybe maybe have the time to realize the extent to which that change had been kind of entrenched as the status quo and the extent to which mm-hmm. it was really, you know, <laughs> even when people could tour, it was kind of untenable in the long run for many. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think literally a lot of us just took a harder look at our royalty statements. Uh, once we couldn't be on the road. I mean, you just, you know, if, if your income gets shut off from one source, you're going to start to look at your other sources of income. And I think, I mean, I, I, I have musician friends who just have told me literally they had not looked carefully at the statements. And I don't blame them because, for one, who has time? And secondly, it wasn't the major part of most of our income at that point. So it wasn't kind of the thing you were doing. And, you know, it's not like, I mean, reading reading royalty reports and things like that is really dull, dull, and it's it's not what most of us got into music to do. And so, if you are busy and doing what you love to do, which is you know playing music and sharing it with 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 audiences and and listeners, um, you know, opening up those those statements and sort of double checking them and questioning their their assumptions and digging into them and then starting to do research and then having to untangle the really uh, extraordinarily and deliberately complex terms of the music (laughs) industry is just not what you want to do with your time. And that's why, you know, we, we, we usually hand it off. You hand it off to management to, um, you trust your label. If you have a trustworthy label, you know, you kind of build relationships in the industry to take that off your back. 
Um, what's happened more and more is that many of us in independent music don't have staff anymore to rely on in that way. Uh, we Many of us are our own record labels now. Um, many of us are uh, just doing a lot more of the jobs that it takes uh, to put music in the public sphere uh, than we used to. Uh, even, I mean, it goes down to even silly things like when you do publicity for a record, it's really typical these days for the, um, if you're lucky enough to have a, a, a magazine or something interested in, in covering your, your new release, they often will ask you to write something and send it to them. You know, they don't, do, they don't do their own article or interview you on their time. They'll be like, could you write us something on blah, 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 blah. And you, I mean, this is pre-COVID, but you end up sitting backstage on your laptop you know, doing your own press. It's just it's another sort of shift of labor, you know, onto, I mean, as, as magazines have cut staff and all of that. But what were you going to say? I was saying it's so funny to hear that because from the journalist side, which I know better, it's the, mm-hmm. the endless complaint is that everyone just publishes press releases. Yeah, totally. And then, yeah, they'll publish press releases, but or they'll say, you know, well, would you send us a top 10 that you're listening to or will you send us a tour diary or will you do an interview by email which um you know on the one hand can be really fun because it can be very detailed and and you know it's going to be more accurate than than many transcriptions but at the same time it's very time consuming and it's different than just having someone show up at soundcheck and talk to you in the dressing room for half an hour uh, and so it's just it, it, there's a lot of labor involved in music, and and more and more of it has sort of been falling on the musicians themselves. So anyway, all by way of saying that you know a lot of us are forced to start to run our own um, businesses down to every detail, including things like reading your contracts and reading your um, statements. But you know if you can avoid it, you do because it's a pain in the ass and. But anyway, when COVID happened and everyone was on the road, I think people did just start to pour over these a little bit more, especially when the checks come back. You know, you get your report from Spotify and it's, or from your distributor or from your label or whoever you're getting your information for your, for your online work. And uh, you can see that your work is being listened to in uh, great numbers uh, often. But of course, the checks come and they're absolutely minuscule. So a lot of us were looking at that in particular. So at Yuma, we broke into um, subcommittees of int- who's interested in looking at this, uh, this issue, this issue, this issue. And I've been active on the streaming committee. So streaming committee, we launched um, an action against Spotify called Justice at Spotify. Um, lockdown was started in March. Um, by the fall, we launched our public um, campaign, which is like a, a media campaign uh, to raise awareness and we constructed demands from Spotify and gathered public signatures. And it, it got a lot of attention. And uh, we think we succeeded in changing the conversation to some degree. Then we've, But we have other committees that are looking at other things, just to go back to what UMA's about. So there's a venues committee that's looking at um, issues in, in, in live work. There's a labels committee that has been literally gathering... Um, record contracts and comparing clauses, which is really unprecedented. I think it is. It really is. It really is. It's it's a, it's a tremendous thing. It's exciting. We have a police abolition committee uh, that has been um, busy, very busy, um, getting instruments into uh, prisons and and um, providing support for the incarcerated in that way. But also, of course, working theoretically against the carceral state 
we have uh, a classical group of classical musicians who came to us sort of as refugees from the AFM, which is the existing um, musicians union, which has been there since the since the beginning of labor movement, really in the U.S. It's an old union. 1898, I think. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, very old union, and they belong to the AFM because orchestras are generally union union shops for the AFM. They're salaried workers. This is why we, you know, my, my cohort in indie rock has never been in the AFM. We were never invited to be because we're self-employed. It's a very different type of, of representation that we need. Um, but we have, we have a group of classical musicians that came to us because they wanted to sort of form a study group about uh, racism and patriarchy in classical music. And they felt that the AFM was not uh, open to this kind of kind of effort. <laughs> so they came to us and we're sort of like an umbrella group for them. So a lot of interesting things are developing um, as we go along. Now, uh, one of the most exciting developments for me at Yuma is we have locals that have sprung up now. So we have local chapters in LA and New York, Chicago, and, and they're sort of pursuing semi-independent course of action, um, depending on where they are and what they're interested in. And that's been... You know, to me, that's kind of sign of a healthy uh, developing labor movement. Yeah, yeah. There's a ton. There's a ton there to to unpack. So maybe like let's keep on that that track mm-hmm. about thinking about it as, you know, a union, but um, also in some ways an advocacy group. So like, is it? Because clearly, I mean, union in the United States has like a specific legal architecture that was kind of hammered out through mm-hmm. a mixture of rule breaking and then kind of you know state intervention and the whole history of the 20th Mm -hmm. century basically i mean so does is this i i realize i i don't know so i'm embarrassed um so like is this Mm -hmm. like a do do you pay dues no we can't not yet anyway but we we you're exactly right we cannot be a formal union uh under the law as things stand because we are self-employed we do not have an employer um, that we can collectively bargain with. Uh, we do not have salaries. I mean, we're we have 1099s generally, not W2s, and that divide is um, written into the law. It needs to change. I mean, what we are is we're gig workers. I think we're the original gig workers, musicians, but now everybody's a gig worker. So I think Congress is actually pretty hard at work, and the Labor Department and progressive politicians in general figuring out what to do for gig workers. Because, I mean, Uber drivers are in the same boat. And not just disruptive, so-called disruptive businesses that have circumvented labor laws by doing this, like Uber, but also I think a lot of industries have just shuffled off so much work onto non-salaried workers in general that, you know, you have a reduction of salaried worker in the, in the, law, in the, in the workforce, which means you have a reduction of union eligibility. So that has to change, and there's there are people working on that. We're obviously um, we're, we're we're in we're in the same boat as us, as a lot of other workers that way, uh, but I don't think that we are going to be able to affect change from our uh, corner of that world about that kind of thing. So I think for that in that regard, I think we're kind of like along for the ride and hope and and doing what we can to to support the larger movements that will have that will have to change those labor laws. Um, so as it stands, we are not technically a union, um, but we are an advocacy group. Uh, we are now organized as a 501c4 or 5, I forget. One is political action and one is a union. 
and we are not permitted to be the one that's a union. But we are not 501c3, which is a nonprofit that is prevented from taking political action. So we um, deliberately organized um, as basically a political advocacy, advocacy group uh, because that's what's available to us now. Uh, so, but, uh, in terms of our organization, I mean, we, we, you know, we wrote up rules for ourselves and voted on them and, and, but it's a, it's a very open democratic, um, experiment that we're, that we're running. And if you participate, you are part of that experiment. So, you know, for me, the most familiar, the, the thing I've been involved with at least a little that was most familiar was Occupy. Um, so I think it's sort of a, I'm a little older than, than, um, well, I'm much older than most of the people in Yuma, but um, I know there were some young, very young people involved in Occupy who had that experience, uh, who are about the edge of the Yuma people too. So it's, um, but I don't know how much of an influence Occupy was specifically on this group, but it was for me. Uh, I feel it comes out of that kind of general um, spontaneous organization in that way. Uh, Black Lives Matter is obviously very influential for a lot, many, many people. Uh, similarly, I think spontaneous and uh, self-organizing uh, for change. So, so that's that's kind of the larger picture. Um, what we're we are operating as an advocacy group, uh, and we are taking political action. But we cannot, for example, I don't think under the law call for a boycott or strike. Yeah, yeah, that makes that's really interesting. I mean, just just it's it's an interesting position, kind of within the broader. Um, world of kind of, um, you know, new union um, advocacy, thinking about like particular bright spots, like mm-hmm. grad student unions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tremendous. I mean, I, I, you know, it's incredible. I now know so many more unionized workers than I did because workplaces are unionizing, you know, museum workers and, uh, and journalists and, um, yeah. you know, pitchfork for God's sake. It's amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And it's a, it is a rejuvenated movement, and I think everyone feels it. It's uh, it's about time, you know. I think just the pendulum swung so far the other way. It's 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 swung in my adult life. I mean, it's as I said, I, ha- I have a, a slightly older viewpoint than most of my uh, colleagues at Yuma, but it's amazing because I mean, I I entered college like the year Reagan was elected, and so my my. Um, you know, my childhood, my adolescence was in a very, very unionized world in the U.S. And then ever since I've been an adult, it's gone the opposite way. And it's been like a really steady, straight downward path. And th- and that's in my working life. So um, it's very, very satisfying to see this turn around. I, it, it's, it's a, this is a personal uh, footnote. When I graduated college the job I tried to get was as a union organizer. Um, I went, uh, Naomi, my partner, was still in school, so I had one year while she finished up school. And we were, well, we ended up living here anyway, permanently, we're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I was, I knew I had to be in Boston, Cambridge for another year at least. So uh, I tried to get hired by AFSCME at the time. And, you know, I got my interview, eager, eager college grad. And, I had, you know, what I thought was a really good resume for like an entry level job doing this. And they looked it over and they said that you're qualified, but we don't think you'll stick. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you're going to go do something else. We need to train people who are going to be in this. And so it's just a kind of irony for my own personal life that the first job I tried to get out of college was was with AFSCME. 
<laughs> and they said, no, you're not in this for the long haul. And I mean, I guess they were right in that, uh, you know, I ultimately went back, I went to grad school and I, and then I quit that to, to be a full-time musician and etc. But, uh, here I am. So it's, for me, it's a little bit full circle. I just want to follow up on what you said about, uh, musicians as the original gig workers, because I think that there is something really useful there and, and something that, that I've found kind of is one of the through lines of the show is that because I think of it, it's, it's, uh, you know, unique relationship to capitalism, maybe, um, that it's both incredibly symbolically powerful, but often kind of monetarily iffy. <laughs> Things seem to happen to the music industry first, um, certainly since maybe the turn of the 20th century. And and so, you know, I, I was really interested in, in thinking about, you know, both, both I guess, maybe strengths and weaknesses, uh, uh, or, the, or the way that that the difficulties of organizing musicians kind of tells us about, yeah, the broader gig economy. Because at some level, it seems to me like there are far fewer um, chokeholds of the kinds that, you know, unions typically want. Like if you want to close the American economy, it's like there's about 40 people in the port of LA who can do Mm -hmm. it fairly effectively. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, partially because of the, technology social media technologies that 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 allow that kind of atomization it's also you guys have a, a tremendous uh reach and ability you know the ability of social movements to to really explode out of seemingly nowhere to to be enormous size and it, mm-hmm. and it feels like it seems to me that that yuma kind of um kind of sits in that in, in the middle of those like both strengths and weaknesses yeah, that's really fascinating. I've really never thought about it that way. I've I have thought about a similar thing, which is just that the technology of I agree that music seems to go first very often, uh, and I've always thought of it in terms of the technology. It was easier to figure out how to record audio than it was to record video. It was easier to record um, uh, and then to transmit audio online, obviously, than it was to transmit video. I mean, it's just it, it, it's not a lot of information in terms of what, what, um, our, our general information economy. Um, so it's, it's a 20th century phenomenon, obviously recording and sharing audio in that way, but it's, um, but it does always seem to be on the leading edge of each wave of technological change. But I never did think about it just in terms of its relationship to capitalism. I don't know. I don't have a good answer, but I'm really, I'm very intrigued by the idea. I mean, something that does make me think of is I just saw that Bernie Sanders is holding a, a like an online thing, or I think it's online or a rally to talk about the labor songs that that mean so much to him. I thought that that's kind of really off. I, I just was like surprised. I was like, you know, I mean, I, not that I'm surprised that he that he has labor songs that mean a lot to him, but that he would sort of take the time to do that. But when you think about it, um, labor songs actually have a lot a lot to do with 20th century labor movements. I mean, music has been there in every single step of the way. And there must be something about that. Yeah. About the way we communicate through music. It's obviously very effective. Uh, it's participatory, unlike a lot of the arts. And um, so I don't know. But, but I've, never, I've never actually really thought about it in those terms. I really enjoy the concept. So kind of thinking, I mean, going back a, a little bit, to, to kind of justice at Spotify, 
Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about that because that that's one area. Just thinking about the the, the clear uh, ability to change the conversation through media means mm-hmm. um, that the, the, the position of Yuma seems to offer. It, it, I was really interested, you know, we, we discussed on the podcast before in previous episodes, kind of the set of demands, but also it, it seems that um, very recently there's like actually been potential legislative action and clearly proposing a bill is, is yeah. a far cry from passing a bill, but it's like a big step along the way. Yeah, well, you can't pass a bill without proposing it. That is for sure. And yeah, that is that is where we have gone. So first we had our Justice at Spotify um, action, which we knew was probably not going to win concessions from Spotify. But like any labor action, we were trying to demand a seat at the table. I mean, that's really the the, the larger um, goal uh, to have our voices heard and to have to put um, to put it out there that this is how musicians are being treated, which is essentially a labor issue. This is how your labor is being treated by this industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, until they, until workers voice that, uh, they remain invisible and unheard. I mean, that's, that's kind of in the nature of industrial capitalism. And I think that that is, that is what we were trying to achieve with that. Just make a lot of noise. Our demands were serious. I mean, we really researched them and we did a lot. We really did our homework and we invited people who are experts in various aspects of the field to come and meet with us on Zoom. And um, we polled other groups who have had um, complaints and gripes about um, the streaming economy. And we put together a list that we felt um, was and was doable if they would actually listen to us. Um, but, uh, you know, reasonable in that kind of regard. But we also, we, we did tailor it for its effect as a message. So we chose to demand a penny a stream. Yeah, I thought that was effective. That was, that's like a, right. it makes it graspable it, in a way. That is exactly what we said to each other on Zoom, debating how to, how to phrase this. And that was the idea, to make it physical, to make it graspable, and also to make it, because then what, what most people said in response was, that's what you're asking for? Like, you're not already getting more than that? And of course, the answer is, we're getting less than a third of that from Spotify. So that gets the one-two punch of like making this very immediately um, uh, a kind of a physical picture of the of of what's going on and then getting the immediate response of like well that's that's not even an unreasonable request that should isn't that what's already happening and then being able to say back actually we're getting 0.03 of a you know well it's 0.003 of a dollar so what you know it's three three hundredths so um a third of a cent so it's just um it was very, very powerful and effective. And we also took it from, you know, modeling after um, Fight for 15 um, for minimum wage and that kind of thing. You, know, you, can, you can use a number because it's a very graphic, um, clear message. So, so just as Spotify was a messaging campaign uh, more than anything, and it really worked. I mean, we got, uh, you know, something like 28,000 musicians and music workers to sign publicly a statement behind the demands and that is a lot because this is another thing we're fighting. Musicians are very afraid to speak out against such a dominant um, platform as Spotify. Spotify controls streaming, and that means they control a lot of our potential income. So, you know, it's like the old joke. It's like our income isn't, isn't enough, but it's in, 
it's our income is terrible, but it's in such small portions. It's it, you know, it's 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 uh, we do depend on them. Uh, so people are afraid to put their names forward, and we have had a can lot I, of trouble. Can I ask a naive yeah. mm-hmm. question about that? Mm-hmm. Potentially naive question, sure. which is, I mean, I I totally understand the sense of like, I mean, Spotify's black box, and the ability to end up on a <laughs> on a playlist or not fundamentally changing people's financial outlook. Mm-hmm. I'm just really interested to is it is there a sense of like real not just retaliatory potential but retaliatory action? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um because well, I mean to give you an example from I I don't we can't know because it's completely opaque. So what are you know our second main demand was for transparency. And this is why because you can't have this kind of opaque control of our musical lives without all kinds of corruption entering in. So Spotify is, is operating uh, without any regulatory oversight. Right. And including the regulatory oversight that exists, for example, for radio. So Spotify has a marketing program called Discovery Mode, which is essentially payola. If they were on the radio, it would be illegal. Um, but because they are online, they claim that they are uh, free and clear of any existing regulation like that. So the answer is yes, they can completely blackball you if they so choose. We know because if you pay them, they will do the opposite. They will boost your 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 appearance in algorithmic playlists. Passive they, listening and Yeah, they and they they brag about it. They say 40%. The way they get around saying it's payola is they say we what they ask for is not cash. They ask for a a steeper discount, even an even lower royalty rate. Right. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But that's essentially a payoff. So they they will they brag that if you give them that, they will take that track that you've accepted to accept that you've agreed to accept less money for, and it will boost up to forty percent more, not in editorial playlists even in algorithmic playlists. Now that distinction is significant. Editorial playlists means you know that's corrupt. I mean, you know some Spotify is branded playlists, one person or some committee is choosing what goes on that. And the top of that playlist is a big payout for whoever's on it. You can um, do like the, there's, there's someone did the analysis of like, mm-hmm. um, what percentage of rap caviar, which is, you know, the big rap right. playlist, their premier rap playlist is independent labels. Rap, which is, you know, a, a, a musical ecosystem that throws off a fair number of independent smash hits absolutely it has and it's some some infinitesimal percentage was my memory. yeah i don't remember yeah. off the top of my head but it's just like oh it's been entirely a major label game it is it is and that's that's because it is a version of payola from the beginning in that the major label the three major labels gave spotify the permission to enter the u.s market in exchange for ownership shares in the company so the three major labels have been on the side of the platform from the beginning and make it pretty petty from it yeah, their estimates, the estimates are insane. You know, m- million dollars a minute I've read, whatever. Whatever it is, they're making more than anybody else. <laughs> um, uh, what's happening is just a, you know, classic consolidation of capital. The, the more of the money in the entire music industry is going to fewer hands through the medium of streaming than right. before. So it's, a, it's, a, it's directing more of everybody's money toward the top of the pyramid. So the major labels are at the top of the pyramid. Within that, there are a handful of artists, pop artists, who are at the top of the pyramid. 
And then there's the rest of us who are just really suffering from this system. So yeah, the transparency is a demand we made because um, you know you can be blackballed. So obviously you can be not put on the big auditorial playlists, but then the further scandal to me and the much more greater, bigger scandal to me is the algorithmic mm-hmm. uh, blackballing that could happen. We all assume it's happening, but it's now been proven true to us um, through the counterexample that they've offered us now um, that by bragging about it, that they can boost your algorithmic placements. Now, if they can boost your algorithmic placements, that means the algorithm is not based on consumers' taste, right? It's not based on, well, you, you know, you listen to Spotify and you like this, you like this, so that this invisible hand of the algorithm is going to deal you a deck that you like. No, it's going to deal you the deck that Spotify wants you to have. And there's no, we don't need any more evidence than their own marketing bragging. Uh, there are marketing points about this now. So yeah, they can blackball you. To take my personal example, Galaxy 500, which gets about three quarters of a million streams a month on Spotify, is on no playlists. Uh, we have less than 5% of our streams are from any playlist wow. at all. And I don't know that I've made my old band blackballed, but I don't not know it. You know, I mean, mean, it stands to reason to me that we could be on more playlists, but we are not. Uh, The other thing I experience I have with this is that after the very first article I wrote about streaming royalties for Pitchfork, Mm -hmm. when they first entered the market, um, it was literally our first royalty check that came through that listed Spotify on it. And I tweeted about it. And Mark Richardson, who was the editor of Pitchfork at the time, contacted me and said, could you make an article out of that tweet? I mean, what a what a 21st century journalist story, right? And now, now I've got, like a, got a career out of that tweet. So um, I was like, yeah. I, he's like, are you willing to talk more about your own statement? And I was like, yeah, I don't care. And so I wrote an article about it, made kind of a splash. I had like, a, you know, I spent two weeks fielding calls from like, the BBC and Canal Plus in France, because nobody had really said, from a musician's point of view, nobody had published an actual royalty statement, and I, I just did. Right. And my calculation was turned out to be deadly accurate. I mean, it's it's, it's my it's proven to be correct. What I even saw in that very first um, statement. Um. Anyway, I that happened after a couple weeks of this, where I was like, I was like a sound bite on a bunch of radio and whatever. I got a call from someone who said that they were an artist liaison for Spotify. Some major label musician I'd never heard of. Uh, obviously, other people had. I don't even remember his name anymore. He was in LA. He said he had a job as an artist liaison for Spotify. He was reaching out to me because uh, they understood that I had, I don't know, wasn't happy with um, the situation. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, you read the article, I guess. And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, you know, I just, they wanted me to call you and say, your next statement's going to be really different, <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, really? Like, why? Because we're going to get more plays? And he's like, I don't know. They just told me to call you and say, your next statement's going to be really different. And I was like, okay, how different? What am I going to get? He's like, I don't know. I was like, well, what are you saying to me exactly? I'd like to know, like in, in actual numbers. Like, you're telling me I'm going to have more plays. You're going to tell me I'm going to get paid more for the same plays I got before. He's like, I don't know. Just wait and see. But I'm letting you know. So I was like, okay. And he's like, and anything else I can do? I was like, actually, no, I don't think there is. And that was it. And I didn't 
call back the number he gave me or make any gesture that was like, I'm a team player. And, um, you know, eventually the next statement arrived and it was exactly the same. (laughs) 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 So, you know, but I mean, the, the implication from the very beginning was like, we could make this better for you, you know? And I was like, uh huh. I think I see how this all works. So it's not really a big secret in the industry, I don't think. The other thing I loved, my favorite part of the um, of the Justice of Spotify campaign, because something that really aligned with something that we've talked a lot about the show, is also the ways in which, I guess, financialization via tech mm-hmm. has intersected with the music industry. Yeah. And the ways in which, because of that conglomeration, um, musicians are creating value that's not captured by a set of 20th century accounting practices basically um you know that are built off of god like the fact that we're you know using performance and mechanical royalties mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for technology that they you know they barely understood vinyl right i mean there wasn't vinyl right shellac mm-hmm. um when they made up those laws let alone ones and zeros in a server farm somewhere yeah um but the sense that that the, 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 for me and it's really key is is that you guys called for i mean like more or less a change of accounting practices mm-hmm. saying that a company like spotify which as far as i can tell isn't making money mm-hmm. sends most of the money the the music income it makes to the major labels mm-hmm. and then makes money from i mean until very recently um having incredibly high stock valuations right being like well, who's making you that stock valuation? It's not the seven people in headquarters. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's us. Yeah, no, we are being bartered in uh, financialization. Absolutely, it's it's you know it it's it's just like um, it's just like the mortgage crisis, like any of these things. These these you know any bubble, and the collateral that they're that is being used to boost their their value on paper is is our our work, and that is absolutely correct. And that's also, I, th- I think, to turn to the, the new campaign we've launched, which is yeah. for legislation, it turns out that Congress and, and elected officials and also the executive branch are very, very alert to this right now because um, tech speculation has gotten the country in so much trouble in various ways that they are sort of, I mean, it's late to the game, of course. Tech moves, business in general moves faster than government. But sure. regulation is now coming or here. And I think that, that when we present what's been going on in music as um, analogous to what's been going on in retail with Amazon, what's been going on in so many industries through these platforms, um, they see it immediately. And they see it um, in a broader picture than we even proposed, really. Really. And that connection is quick, immediate, and we just get taken up. And so our our task as an advocacy group has just been, we realized quickly when we started speaking to uh, government people, was just to make sure that music gets included, that they put Spotify, for example, or and Apple and Amazon are already on the list. Um, but those are the three companies that we mostly deal with. It's, mm-hmm. Streaming is dominated by in the U.S. by these three companies, I Spotify, guess Apple, and Amazon. A little bit, TikTok, in a weird way. Not yet. I mean, it's really in terms of paid streaming. Oh, paid streaming for sure. <laughs> mm. Yeah. No, paid streaming, it's um, Spotify has about 30 plus percent of the market, which is close to what Amazon had just a few years ago. 
now it's even more in retail. And then Apple and Amazon have about 15% each. Tencent has another big share globally. Right. And once you've got all of those together, you that's about it. Um, whether you include Google through YouTube or not is a big question uh, because uh, Google paid service is very small, uh, but Google unpaid obviously is very big. But that's, that's a side. To us, it's a little bit of a side question because it, it engages copyright issues that we've decided are, are not our primary focus. Interesting. Um, because practically speaking, it splits... It splits our um, constituencies, and uh, in what way? To, well, they're very passionate. Um, they're very passionate feelings about copyright law, and copyright. It, it's like the third rail, I think, of of um, creative rights advocacy, because you have people who argue with very good reason for freedom of information, and you have people who argue very passionately for um, greater control over copyrights. Siding with one or the other uh, cuts you off from the other side, and we really need both sides to affect change in non-copyright issues, like um, how are musicians being paid. Now, a lot of people involved in those fights will tell you, well, no, it's all about copyright, but we're saying no, it's actually about labor. And that's, again, to get back to the union uh, question, we are framing this as labor and capital, not as an intellectual property fight. That's so useful. Um, and I think that's, that's uh, thank you. profoundly useful. Because, I mean, it's something we've talked about before. And, and like, the sense of that, that, that copyright is a, you know, a legal abstraction. No matter how good mm-hmm. the law is, it's a weird legal abstraction that gets passed and then worked over by lawyers that's attempting to kind of, like, make a mold out of jelly almost right it's always mm-hmm. going to overflow because human creativity it's it's a it's not the you know it's the best we have maybe to, to do something mm-hmm. as artificial as monetize human creativity but it's always it doesn't work very well and 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 phrasing it as like no focus on the labor um mm-hmm. i think that's a it's a profoundly different perspective and one that's that seems tremendously useful yeah i think it i think it's our contribution at yuma to to push that narrative and and we are we're very focused on that, and we've had a lot of conversations. Sometimes they can get heated with people who feel very strongly that copyright needs to be at the center of the conversation. And uh, we have decided uh, thus far, um, as a collective, to not put it at the center of our of our narrative at all. Um, and as I say, it's partly a practical a practical decision, but it's partly because we do really do believe this is a question about labor. What we're finding with government is that when you present it as a question of labor, you get a lot farther a lot quicker. Sure. Um, because we're drawing on a huge history, as you are obviously very particularly well aware. You're drawing on a long history and a lot of battles that have been won for labor. And really what you're really you know, what we're really saying is we just want those applied to us. Um, we're not trying to create like new um, you you don't have to fight. You don't have to create the new battle all over again. You can just say, "No, look, this is a new technology, but the old laws protecting labor have to apply." And that's a much simpler message than revising copyright law, for example. So, in, in terms of distinct requests, I mean, I know there's there's mm-hmm. this discussion about a streaming royalty. Um, right. And I guess is, is there other is there other legislation that seems like it, it's got the potential to 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 be proposed at least. 
Well, this is what we're focusing on. There's definitely other legislation that's happening. I mean, the the bill that's that's further along than than we are is the American Music Fairness Act, which we didn't create, obviously. It's uh, created by a whole lot of very powerful lobbying groups. And that is to, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's to um, finally pay recording uh, master rights for radio play, commercial wow, radio play. They're really trying to do it, huh? Yeah. That's now, amazing. The thing is, this is 100 years late. I mean, literally <laughs> 100 years late. And they're still struggling to pass it because the broadcasters um, have such a powerful lobbying voice almost, and have had going all the way back. It almost tanked the Music Modernization Act when they tried to right. include that, I remember. Exactly. It has been impossible. It has been introduced again and again and again and again. It is again there right now in committee and um, is being fought over again. So, you know, these kinds of things are happening out there. Well, nothing is happening about streaming. And so we are saying, okay, okay, we support your idea that, you know, yes, radio should have been paying <laughs> um, uh Master rise forever. Just, just for listeners, but, really quickly, uh, if you're not aware, the <laughs> artists who performed a song do not get paid anything for that song being played on the radio. If they're the songwriters, they get paid. But if mm-hmm. they do not get paid for the recording, a crazy fact that just want to put in there as a button. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. No, not even the record labels in that case, except for satellite radio. So what we're leaning on is a um, as a precursor to what we're pushing for is what happened when satellite radio came online in the 90s. And a kind of amazing thing happened, which is that Congress passed a new law that uh, required payment by satellite radio and legislated it to both the master rights holder, that's usually the record labels, and this is the big, big plus, and this is what we're after, the, the musicians who played on the recordings themselves, the, the working musicians, whether they hold a contract with the record label or not, both I didn't get know paid that. from salary. That's Radio. unbelievable. Right. That is a concept that in American law is unique for our technologies, essentially. So a lot of recording musicians like session players were paid royalties for the very first time ever by satellite radio when that went into effect. Because if you didn't hold the contract, um, you know, you, you, you had no rights to any claim uh, for royalty agreements. Now, satellite radio um, is shrinking because of streaming. Obviously, everything is shrinking because of streaming. Physical media, satellite radio, commercial radio, everything is being subsumed by streaming. So we have to address streaming. And we, you know, what we're pushing is that Congress needs to address it now not 50 years from now when streaming won't matter, uh, but now. And that's what, we're, that's what we're after. So we're very impatient. And, you know, I think some of the longstanding lobbying groups are sort of looking at us like, well, wait a minute. I mean, we've been asked this specifically, like, well, don't push too hard until we pass the American Music Fairness Act. It's like, oh, my God, how many years have you been waiting to pass the American Music Fairness Act for radio payments? You were talking about, I mean, it's been introduced, I think, literally since the 1950s. And should have been in the 1920s. So it's 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 incredible how slow things can happen uh, or not happen. Um, but we're saying no. You've got to move fast. You've got to move now. This is this is the 21st century problem. Yeah. Tech moves very fast. 
government does our democratic government does not move fast and tech is can run circles around our democratic institutions and we're suffering in every which way from that so again to get back to the the legislation so we are just simply proposing um similar to what satellite radio um uh what Congress did for satellite radio, a payment direct to the recording musicians. The the labels, the master rights holders are already being paid by streaming. And we're saying, fine, they got theirs. We're not going to touch any contracts. We're not saying, we're not challenging any of those contracts. And the major labels can continue to pull all that money out of streaming. We're not attacking that through the Congress. We are just saying there's a missing income stream here, which there is. And the missing stream is to the recording musicians, just like satellite radio. And because of the satellite radio um, structure, there's already an organization that has the database right. to collect and distribute that money. It's called Sound Exchange. So the structure is in place. So we're actually, we think we've constructed a very doable thing. And that's what we're pushing. That's astonishing. And, and, and yeah, it does seem like, I mean, just, you know, as we kind of close out here, I mean, the thing that that because two two thoughts. Oh, I mean, one is that I love this because it turns the centralization of the music industry on its head in some ways. It's mm-hmm. because there's you know, in the fifties when there are all the independent labels that are ripping off everyone, it'd be very hard to create legislation that would change all of their business behaviors. But because Absolutely. you're only dealing with three companies, mm-hmm. kind of there's you know the so, the socialization of labor that emerges from that in a very weird way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been another thing we've talked about self-consciously at Yuma, that it is like we're on a factory floor now. We are a, a unionizable shop because we all work for the same employers now. And that yeah. the streaming platforms have brought down on their own heads. Um, it's because they have monopolized this industry that they have um, put us all in the, in the position of labor to their capital. We weren't. I mean, I wasn't when I... Bef- before this, this technology dom- came to dominate the industry, I have I have a career that was completely independent of the major label music industry, and of commercial radio, and of you know that whole thing of the chain stores. It all was going on, and so was my life, and no problem. And I really uh, have no connection really to to that part of the traditional music world. But once streaming hit, lo and behold. All of us are working. First, it was for Apple because of iTunes. Mm -hmm. And now it's for Spotify, Amazon, and Apple together. And that's it. So we are all all under the same, on the same union, you know, the same shop floor. And once you put everybody in the same shop floor, the same things happen that have happened time and time again in industrial capitalism, which is, you know, workers start to talk to each other. We're given the tools to organize um, by uh, the capitalists and we're using them. So that is that is again why we we feel we are a union in all but um legal status at the moment. Yeah. Well, I really I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk today. My, my pleasure. We'll be eagerly following the path of the path of thank this legislation. Thank you. Solidarity.